Hey, this is Alex Terranova, and this is the Dream Mason Podcast. We've been taught to behave, to fit in, to follow the rules, but Dream Masons reject conventional thought. Dream Masons are rebels. They take a chisel to the marble that is typical traditional life. They carve out brilliance and broadcast it to the world. Join me for another chapter as we unmask convention, embrace the rebels within us, and more deeply come to explore the complex and agitated edges of our existence. Now, before we get started, please don't be a rebel yet and grab your phone and hit that little button that says subscribe. Thank you. Because your dreams don't build themselves. What's up and welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. I am your host, Alex Terranova. We are halfway through July 2020, the wildest year of my life personally. Um, at first it started out as a frustration and then it became annoying and then it became kind of nice and fun and relaxing because I didn't have to do a lot of stuff. And now I'm just like, where the hell is this year going? Like where, what is next or what are we going to take away and learn? And I know for me, one of the things that I have uh, really got to do this year is focus on my well-being because the, like, let's just say life has thrown everything off kilter. Life took away my hot yoga, which was a way that I kept myself healthy and mindful. Life took away the gym, which was a way that I felt strong. Life took away, um, let's say bars and restaurants and places where you went to like kind of relax. Uh, God, it took away the ability to travel, which was a way to kind of get away and explore and do adventures. And, and we can go on and on and on about all the, these amazing things about, you know, that I'm really privileged to have in my life that have been removed, but it actually required me to go back to the basics, the things that six years ago when I decided I wanted to change my life, what were the things I did? Well, I had to read. I meditated, I had to get quiet, I had to work with my coach and, and practice, you know, uh, be mindful about my thoughts. And it had me focus on, hey, what are the things that I can control that I can create? How can I push myself out of my comfort zone in sometimes ways that are just available around the house or in my relationships? So I'm excited to talk to our guest today because he works with men. I identify as a man. Um, I know a lot of my viewers uh, identify as men. Some of you may not. Some of you, and it doesn't really matter. I think that one of the things about this work is there's something for all of us. So if I'm talking to someone about finances and your finances are on point, there's, that doesn't mean there isn't something for you to learn. And something that I do, so if you're like, hearing this or you're, you know, or you listen to this podcast regularly and you're thinking, well, I know about this. I, I've done a lot of work and I'm a man or I'm a woman. So maybe this doesn't apply to me or I don't identify as a binary gender. Either way, what I want to offer you is I believe that there's value everywhere in life and it's up to you to go create it or look for it or find it. So I think there's going to be a ton of value here today, and I invite you to look for the value that you can take away and you can create from what we're going to bring and how this can help you in a 2020 that is pretty wild and, uh, and unpredictable. My guest today is very accomplished and done some very cool things. And I'll say the first one because, uh, I don't know, it's the most exciting, it's the most glamorous. So 
I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Inside Out. It's a Pixar cartoon. I saw it for the first time in December and January, and my mind was pretty blown because it's a cartoon that talks basically about how our mind works, how our emotions work, and how a lot of these things have, we've kind of misinterpreted them. We've mislabeled them. We've thought about them as like one way when actually they could be viewed another way. He was a consultant on this movie. So I'm, I'm very interested to, to learn more about how he, the part he played in that. He's a doctor of psychology. He has a podcast called the Evolved Caveman Podcast. He says he's a reluctant podcaster. What I learned about him, him, he like I uh, don't like to put labels on things. And uh, <laughs> so it's part of uh, the rebelness of who he is. He's created a video series with his fiance, which is really about, it's like over 30 videos with experts on surviving to thriving. In, and they made it for 2020. He's a men's executive coach and relationship coach. He's an expert on positive psychology. And he used to, he's put over 10,000 men through an anger management course that used to be his focus. So there's a lot there, a lot, a lot. And I'm really excited to uh, talk to him about what he kind of described to me as the, the quote unquote man box and what that means and how we put ourselves in this box. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. John. John, I'm going to give you, Dr. John, I'm going to give you an opportunity to say your last name, right? You told me I don't have to, but I want to try. So uh, Dr. John Schinnerer, did I get it? Very good. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, thanks for having me, Alex. You're welcome. You know, I, I'm curious just to start off because we're all in this. This is probably one of the first things in the world that has really impacted the entire world, right? Like things, even world, things like world wars did not impact every single place on the planet. But COVID, regardless of how you feel about it or think about it, it's impacted all of us. Um, how has it impacted you? And you said you're, you, know, you have a fiance and your life and your business. Uh it- yeah, it's a great question. I mean, my business has never been better. Um, you know, we were talking with Jen Kim, who's kind of a business futurist. And she said that one of the, one of the occupations that's really going to benefit from this long term is mental health professionals. And I, I think she's absolutely correct. I think that we are just beginning to see the tip of the spear or the iceberg in terms of um, suicide, depression, anxiety, um, people just basically losing control of their mind. and you know, I, I see more and more people having more and more severe effects of this as we kind of grind into the fifth month. Um, and yeah, I, I see more depression and anxiety and I've seen one suicide. Um, and it's interesting, the people that I see it affecting the most are people that live alone <clears throat> and people that are extroverted because they can't get out there. They can't socialize. And we're, regardless of introversion, extroversion, we humans as a species are not made for this. So it's, it's a very difficult task. And I, I think, you know, to flip it, I think it gives us a really great opportunity to learn how to turn inward, to explore our internal landscape of thought and emotion, to be still, to get more comfortable with doing, or sorry, with being rather than doing. And I think we men in particular our whole idea of self, our whole self-worth, our whole self-concept of masculinity tends to get wrapped up in doing. 
Yeah, that's you said that. <clears throat> excuse me. You said that really well. I, I talk a lot and have talked a lot about being versus doing on, on these podcasts. I'm curious how you see it because you specifically said men and then you touched on masculinity. When you do you think that there's like a difference? Do you, or could we say that like it's the masculine? That is that like that's a ma- like doing is a masculine property so that there's plenty of women out there or people that don't identify that fall into that also. Yeah, why when I say when I talk about masculinity, masculinity could like you could have a female who is more masculine than feminine. I mean, I'm always looking at it as a balance. I, I think we all have some degree of masculine, some degree of feminine, and I think actually that's one of the goals is to balance those two better within us, but. For instance, if I look at my mom, my mom would tell you that she's more masculine than feminine. So it's, you know, part of it is related to gender. Part of it is related to the, the concept of masculinity itself. And it's not gender specific. But, you know, if we go into like man box culture, I will talk about it with men in mind. Yeah, I get that. I like to, I like to touch on it because I do think I know men that are not very masculine. Right. And that's not I don't say that as an insult or a bad thing. It's simply how they show up in the world. That's not who their being is. And and look, we've created what masculine and feminine are as these attributes. But I think they typically show up as what we typically say is less masculine. And I know women. God, man, my girlfriend is a beautiful woman. And if you look at her, you see feminine. But she lives on a ranch and handles it herself. And she she put me on a bobcat this week and she's on a tractor and if you looked at the two of us, I was vastly more uncomfortable and uncoordinated. I'd never done it before. And she's also like, isn't this fun? <laughs> and I'm like, it might be when I get better at it. Right now, it's really frustrating because my masculine is telling me I should be good driving a tractor yep. and I suck right now. Yep. And I'm looking at my beautiful girlfriend who in my, my default brain goes, she shouldn't be good at this, which is all silly. Well, it's, it, isn't that a funny thought too? I should be good at this. Mm-hmm. Why should you be good at it? I mean, like to me, that thought right. is complete bullshit, right? It's like, yeah. why should I be good at driving a tractor? I've never driven a tractor before. <laughs> I, I didn't grow up on a, a ranch or a farm, but it's the thoughts, they still come. Uh-huh. But I think that's exactly tied into that man box culture and how we're socialized and what we think we should be doing. Mm-hmm. I think about it a lot with my relationship to women as I grew up. You know, I, I really early on, like, I think I remember as early as like fifth grade, seeing the, the, the value that I made up in fifth grade, that women's attention for me or on me was very valuable. And that determined my worth. And from fifth grade until about 32, 33, before I realized like this wasn't a real thing and I had to start breaking it up. I thought part of being a man was getting laid hot women being able to I want to say like manipulate in the sense of like go get women play the game Mm -hmm. which I look back now and I'm like it's so much manipulation and it's so much like inauthenticity because it really wasn't who I was or what I wanted but I was I was like subconsciously programmed by media and people I you know athletes and things I thought I looked up to of like this is what a man is well so would it help to hear that none of that was your fault well, I, so I've, I've, yeah, I think that is helpful for a lot of people to hear. I mean, I appreciate you saying it to me. <laughs> I think I've done the work that I know that I know that like I can really dissect like looking at the media that I saw and it was just almost yeah. like subliminal, subliminally programmed. 
I think what you're saying, which is beautiful, is that like people need to hear that. Like mm-hmm. men need to hear it. Women need to hear it. a lot of the things they think about being a woman or feminine is not their fault either. Well, and yeah, and I, I can put context around that, but Please. Um, so let me, can I go into the man box culture? Cause I think that sets kind of the foundation for everything yeah, that comes yeah, after. Yeah, please go ahead. Um, so this concept is based on the work of Paul Kibble, who was in Oakland, California in the eighties. And he was having a hard time connecting in the school district with African-American teenage boys. And so he started asking them questions as a way to kind of find out more about them. And he would ask, what does it mean to be a man? And this is middle school and high school. And the answers he got were remarkably consistent. It was things like, uh, men suffer pain and silence. Men don't ask for help. Men never lose. Men don't have any needs. Men provide for the family. Men don't depend on anyone. Men can't be seen as weak. And the, the big one to me is men don't feel. And so let me back up a sec, because in the 70s, women started getting increasingly into the workforce. And as they did that, they got more and more of their own financial independence. At that point, there was a shift in marriages in the U.S. where women didn't need us men for the financial aspect of marriage as much as they used to. So marriage has always been a financial arrangement up until the 70s, I would argue, for the vast majority of people. Once that shift started happening, the expectations of wives and marriages began to shift, but nobody told us. So now, you know, when my dad was younger, it would have been okay, like he'd be a good man if he provided for the family, if he didn't get addicted to drugs or alcohol, and if he wasn't abusive. And that's changed. And I would say that now it's more about women want a lifelong romantic partner, which means we need to be more sympathetic, more empathetic, more communicative, more understanding, and more supportive. But we're not socialized in that direction. In fact, if we're socialized, well, we get mocked and humiliated if we go in that direction. So to go back to the man box culture, what happens when we're growing up, and some research shows that this starts as early as five years old, that, you know, let's say you're in kindergarten class with a group of boys and you think Sally's really cute. So you're like, hey guys, I want to give Sally a flower. And someone in that group, usually like the pre-alpha male who has an alpha dad, says, dude, don't be such a girl. And you realize really quickly, like, okay, I don't like how that feels. I'm not going to put that out there anymore. And so the, the biggest problem that I see, you know, and, and some of this stuff, some of the rules we learn about being men, I would say are positive, like being a provider for the family, um, being self-reliant, I think is good up to a point. Um, but the, the biggest problem I see is with these, the men don't feel. And so what happens over time is we get cut off from two thirds of the emotional spectrum. So for example, if growing up in high school, if I show too much sadness or fear, someone will say something like, dude, don't be such a pussy. Don't be a bitch. Don't be a little girl. And you, you realize really quickly, I don't like that. That's embarrassing. And you jump back in the man box and you, you know, you get that a few times and you just shut off sharing sadness or fear. And then on the other side, if you show too much joy, love, excitement, romanticism, flamboyance, God forbid, someone will say something like, dude, don't be so gay. Don't be a fag. And I I apologize for the uh, slurs, but this is what we get growing up. 
So again, you jump back in the man box. So we're cut off from those two thirds of the emotional spectrum. So what are we left with? We're left with lust. And so these are emotions you can publicly display without fear of humiliation. Lust, she's so hot, I do her. Look at that ass, that kind of thing. Stress, because I can say I'm so stressed, which implies I'm busy and important. Or the big one, some degree of anger. And so a lot of our emotions get funneled into that anger lens. So I've seen guilt flip to anger. I've seen anxiety flip to anger. Depression comes out as irritability. Guilt and shame flip to anger. And, you know, we're talking about a third of a second that that switch happens. So it's really, really fast. Um, but we're, we're not given the tools. We're not socialized. In fact, we're, as I said, we're mocked and humiliated for developing in that direction. So then fast forward into adulthood, we're in a relationship, a marriage, and our wives are like, why can't you connect? Why can't you communicate? Why aren't you emotionally literate? Well, we weren't socialized in that way. And, and that's what I mean, that it's not our fault. We didn't ask to be socialized this way. But it is our responsibility, I would argue, to evolve past it. Yeah, I love, thanks for breaking that down, like very simply and clean. Um, and I think you do pose a, a good rep representation of what it is like to be an average man growing up in, in America, let's say. And, and those things that we do to each other aren't right, right? The like you even pointed to like, hey, I'm sorry that I use this language, but like that's what happens in a locker room or with a bunch of guys playing video games or whatever it is. Um, when you were talking, the thing that I that I got present to was was how we shut it off. And my dad was a very like like blue collar, strong, kind of scary. Anger was the emotion he utilized best. Now I remember seeing him cry, like sad movies and things like that. But like anger was the one that that showed up powerfully. And I remember growing up thinking my dad was like out of control with anger. Like it was like, I didn't, that was something about my dad I didn't like. And because I felt like if you can't control yourself, how can you control any, anything or anyone else, right? How I played with this in my mind. And so I did a thing where I don't do anger, right? I put the cap, like I shut anger completely down. And to your point, so now I still had lust. I still had stress. I liked how you identified those. And then I had, and then it was kind of like anger bled into these other places. Instead of being angry, I was stressed and frustrated more. And I think one of the, my mentors often says is our emotions are like a pipe. And if we don't let the things flow through it in a healthy way, it gets clogged up. And then what happens? The pipe bursts at some point. Mm -hmm. um, and I, by locking anger out and not having any access to sadness, because I just didn't even know what that meant or what it was, mm -hmm. it was like, I blocked the pipe. So I didn't even get to experience joyfully because yeah. the whole, like I lose out on all of it. It's kind of like, no, please. Well, and that's, I mean, it's a really good point because one of the things that I'm working on now is this idea of how we're socialized as men in the man box culture, I think really hamstrings us in life in terms of achieving happiness. And I, a lot of the men, like my tagline is kind of, you know, I work with men to increase success and happiness at work and at home. Because I think that a lot of men that I work with are successful at work, but not necessarily happy. 
And the biggest source of misery comes at home in their relationship. But if we're cut off from two thirds of the emotional spectrum and happiness is by definition an emotional experience, how the hell are we ever going to achieve happiness? Yeah, I, I see it as fulfillment a lot. Like it's the success doesn't equal fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So you, 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 you know, built that company, but you're not fulfilled even though you did that thing. And to me, they're, how can you be happy if you're not fulfilled or how can you be fulfilled if you're not, they, they are part of that same experience. Um, I want to ask you about how this plays into your own life. Like, where do you do this work on yourself in your relationship? Like, where's that spot where you're still working to grow that you find yourself still going to the man box? Um, I think I do it in my language a lot. Um, I like to swear a lot on my podcast. And I think that's old, like, holdovers of the man box culture. Um, I think that I probably pose a little bit as more masculine than I am at times by doing so. Um, it's interesting, you know, we were talking about Inside Out, and one of the things that they got right based on neuroscience in that movie is that we all have a primary emotion or a signature emotion. So if you pay attention to the control panels in different people's minds and which emotion is at the center of the control panel, it varies. So for instance, Riley, the 13-year-old girl, her primary emotion was happiness until she hit puberty. And then it was kind of happy and sad. Um, the mom's primary emotion is sadness. The dad's primary emotion is anger. So you were talking about your dad, and I would say, you know, one of the possibilities is his primary emotion was anger. And, and I think one of the hypotheses I have, and I don't have anything to back this up, but I wonder if one of our goals in this lifetime isn't to go through each of the main primary emotions so that we can get to something like contentment or happiness. But I think, you know, if going back to my own work and my own, um, you know, you mentioned the reluctant podcaster and I, I was reluctant to start my podcast. And part of the reason why was fear, because I know that if I'm talking about masculinity or man box culture or trying to teach men, it's a minefield. Like it's easy to step in it. Um, yeah. and, and I'll go to some, you know, like after the Black Lives Matter protests, I interviewed a friend of mine who's African-American and we had this great, powerful, uncomfortable conversation about how to be a white ally. Mm -hmm. um, but so I, I think, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't really keen on, on starting the podcast because I knew I would take shots. Yeah. And, and it's funny because the shots that people can take are the same damn shots that you would have taken in middle school. Mm -hmm. they, I, and, and that, it speaks to how little some of us men have evolved. Yeah, Dude, that's you know, so gay. I, I was, it's the same stuff. I was just talking about how, I don't know if you've seen this, I thought it was pretty funny. And again, it doesn't, I really want to stress, like, I don't care what you believe. It's, this is just, I, I watched these two, it was a video of two guys in Manhattan Beach, California. And they walk around with a box that says free masks. And they're like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure guys. I mean, they're like stony surfers. These guys are not like out here trying to like outsmart you or they're, they're like, Hey, anybody want there? You know, they're just walking around the strand going, do you want a mask? Do you want a mask? Do you want a mask? And you see people get up and walk away from them. You see people say no. And if they say no, they ask why. 
they basically ask the most simple questions. They're not trying to stump anyone. It's like, why are you afraid of coronavirus? Do you not care, right? Like simple things. And at no point do they judge or critique anyone on their response. They just might ask another question that's very simple and basic. But what you see is how people's, I want to say you see people's primary emotions show up in this. Mm -hmm. It triggers something in us. Now, for some people, it triggers like this gratitude and joy. Thank you for giving those out. There's one guy who's riding a bike, a middle-aged man, shirt off, riding his bike down the strand. He stops. He gets off. He walks towards them and he's like, fuck you guys. You're not going to take away my freedom. Right? I don't care. Like, but I, the first thing I thought was what, what happened? What did that guy interpret that had that be the response? Because mm -hmm. all he had to say was no and keep going. You know, they didn't say, Hey, you're a jerk for not taking it. They just said, you want a mask? And, and he could have just wrote, but something got triggered and that kicked off that emotion. And I think that one of the things you talked about what we're going through um, right now in the mental health, I think that all the things in life, every circumstance triggers something, right? It triggers that primary emotion. It's, it's, it's cool how you say it. And I think right now it's like we're on overload because mm -hmm. normally we have our normal circumstances, right? Money, relationship problems. Maybe we're stressed a little about like our family or our community or whatnot, our kids education or something. But right now it's, it's like, like 2020 is like testing us. It's just like, stacking it on and where's the breaking point where you, how, i'm curious for you how people that like how you're finding how you're finding ways to support people especially a lot of the people that are like normally wouldn't look for help they would like just let this stuff they would let their anger just explode they'd let their stress explode oh boy there's a lot to that question um i i mean i think one of the big ideas that I talk to a lot of clients about right now is self-care, which is not the best term for men, but it's the idea of what are you doing to fill up your bucket of positive emotions right now? And, you know, Alex, you talked about like going to the gym or Bikram yoga, and those are ways that you used to fill yourself up, but can't do right now. So what else could we do that helps you to feel rejuvenated and ideally happy? Um, and so we've had to adjust and adapt. Um, and maybe it's going for a walk or a run instead of going to the gym. Maybe it's things like spending more time with your kids. Maybe it's things like doing a puzzle. Um, so there's, there's different ways to do it, but it's, it's interesting to me because one of the things I've always tried to do is take complex ideas in like academia and break them down so that anyone can understand them and make use of the tools. That's always been kind of my driving purpose. And then part of it is I just, like the, the surviving to thriving uh, virtual global summit that we talked about earlier, like we just gave that away for free for 30 days just because we wanted to serve. So I'm, I try to reach men where they're at. Um, I try to create really low barriers to checking out some of this information so that they can take a look at it without being defensive and just consider it. Because, you know, if you think of most men, I would say most men, our primary emotion is anger. And, you know, closely tied to anger is defensiveness. And, you know, there's a great quote by Bradley, I think it's Bradley Whitmore, Bradley Whitcomb. He's an actor on the West Wing, but he's got this great quote about um, when he gets criticism from a director, 
he goes through three stages internally. The first one's fuck you. The second one is I suck. The third one is wait, what? And I think that's a really great framework because I think we all go through that when we get criticized or perceived to be criticized. And I think men in particular. So a lot of times we can't even get past the first stage to get to the second stage. And if we get past the second stage, then we can actually consider the information and go, huh, maybe there's something here. But you know, it's that it's anger externalized and then anger internalized. And then, oh, wait, yeah, maybe I should check that out. So I think part of it's about meeting men where they're at. Part of it's about low barriers to checking out the information. You reminded me, that's a, it's like a great point how you, with that process, I like how you shared that. I've never heard that before. I asked a client this week if instead of just answering my questions, like a man's man, and, and giving me, telling me what he already knows, because we don't need to be on a call if he just tells me what he already knows, um, if he would actually pause and actually take a look before he responded. And he was like, sure, yeah. And, and, then, he, and then he was like, wow, you just caught me in all my bullshit, right? Like he, he's, he's part of his masculinity is like charisma and like, you know, being able to say the right thing and get the results he wants and having to stop and actually take a look at, well, this is like my default response, but what's actually, what's underneath that? Like that, mm-hmm. that third layer, wait, what? What was the question? What did he ask? What came up for me? What's, what is it triggering? What does it mean? Where did it come from? You just reminded me of that. I think that's a, it's a really nice, it's a really simple thing. Three stages. You have like your emotion, yeah. your probably your beliefs about yourself, and then your, wait, what's actually the truth? Maybe. Um, yeah. And when most men that I talk to have that really strong inner critic mm-hmm. that, you know, just berates them. And, and I've done it before as well. It's funny, I'll, I'll ask people about their inner critic at times. And, you know, in one exercise specifically ask, what would your inner critic tell you right now? And very few people are like, yeah, you're a worthless piece of shit. And so I'm always like, wow, your, your mind sounds very clean compared to mine. Cause mine does sound like, you know, you stupid dumbass, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I, I think we've got to get past that inner critic, which is the second of those stages. Um, but yeah, I like that as just a simple way of looking at what's my response to this information? Because I do think as men, anger is one of our primary emotions. And you know, you combine that with one of the rules that we learn growing up about what it means to be masculine, that you know, we suffer pain and silence, we don't ask for help, we're self-reliant. And you can see where men are not the ones to pick up self-help books. They're not the ones to pursue coaching or therapy or psychology. I mean, we know in like couples counseling that I think 95% of the people that pull a couple into a couples counselor is the female. Um, and again, not our fault, but I think it's, it's our responsibility to find ways to evolve past that. It's, it's so funny in the things you learn. So I was the one that pushed for the couples counseling in my relationship. <laughs> you're, you're the 5%. And yeah. I'm one of the 5%. And I think that, um, it's funny how we have these like things that these lines that we drop that are made up. We were sitting in, we were sitting in couples counseling one day and we were talking about how I'm like, I just don't know what's going on inside of you because you don't tell me. And then, and I'm like, and when, and you get upset, you just want to go out on the ranch and build the fence. 
And then we looked and, and we looked at each other and we were like, this is so ironic that we're like <laughs> in certain parts of our relationship the roles are, when I say reverse, they're just flipped in terms of traditional or the way that we yeah. put the, created the boxes, right? It's not, there's nothing wrong with the way she does it or mm-hmm. the way I do it. It's just, I actually, you know, I grew up with a dad who showed a lot of anger and I was like, I don't like that. And I grew up with a mom who's a marriage and family therapist who talked things huh. out. And so for me, I saw a lot more impact in the talking things out, even the way they punished me. My dad punished through like, I'm going to go get the belt. And my mom punished through psychological punishments. Like you're going to take the door off your room and have no privacy for a week. Right? Oh, I love something, that one. So, something like that. And there's <laughs> so many things that she did like that. But I, rem- I look back and I'm like, yeah, the dad, my dad's punishments hurt for a minute. And they actually made me resent him. My mom's punishments were ongoing pain, but for some reason I didn't attach them to her. It was like, I did it to myself versus it being done to me. Mm-hmm. And I look at how that shows up now as I, f- I think I'm a pretty masculine man. Like if you saw me, you wouldn't, you, you would attribute more masculine than not, not the most, but more so. And yet I have these characteristics that are traditionally feminine. I want to talk mm-hmm. stuff out. I, I can tell you what I feel. Um, I want to know what you feel. And then my, my girlfriend grew up in almost uh, an environment that was like they're ranchers farming, like you got it, you work hard. If you get hurt, like it, you're not hurt unless it's like something's broken, mm-hmm. very, very serious. So suck it up, get back on the horse, get back on there. And it's a cool, it's cool to see because right, we're male and female. We both identify as those things. And yet the way we show up in our being and our mindset is almost flipped at times. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's, it's a very good way to put it. Um, and you know, it's funny, I, it makes me think that uh, there was a question I got in one interview and I, I think he was kind of tongue in cheek, but he was saying, you know, it seems to me like you're arguing for the wussification of men. And I was like, well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a really good question. Thank you. And I would say, no, that's not what I'm arguing for. What I'm arguing for is the ability to shift gears that we are in numerous contexts in our day-to-day life, work, parenting, being with our our romantic partner, um, being out at a bar, being social. um, And you need the ability to shift gears internally, mentally, psychologically, cognitively, emotionally, to best fit the needs of that environment. So for example, if you're going out and playing rugby, fine be a badass alpha, like ignore your pain. Don't show anything. Be stoic. Like all that works for rugby. And then if you go home and you've got, let's say a five-year-old daughter who's just fallen and skinned her knee, have the ability to shift gears, to be patient and nurturing and kind and loving and warm, have the ability to soften towards her. And then if you go to, you know, date night with your wife, have the ability to be compassionate and supportive and empathetic, to be a good listener, um, to be emotionally literate. So to me, it's just a matter of having the ability to shift gears to fit the situation. And I think most men that I, I know and myself at one time, we have one gear. I love it. It's, a, it's beautifully said, like in the, the gears. And the way I, I hear this and I internalize what you're saying is it's about living a full life. 
like mm-hmm. actually getting to experience the spectrum of what it means to be a human being, not, and it's the man box is a perfect thing, right? Like not just one version, not one gear, not one experience. I think about, um, I love like bringing up things on, on my podcast that I've never talked about, about me before, but something I struggled for a long time sexually in relationships if I wasn't in control of the way the sex went. Like I had to be the one, like, t- like I had to be the one in control in the sense of I'm doing that. I used to say it's like I'm doing work. It's like sex time, put on a hard hat, go to work, take care of the woman, make <laughs> sure I – like my sexual satisfaction came through making sure she got hers because then I got my okay. ego like – I'm yeah, good. True. I got my ego got lit up and then I will, I'll get off also. Yeah. And, and I, I, there, I there's another way to look at that, but okay. So with this, but so then in a, in, in my current relationship, um, there were, I, we were, we were literally joking about this where at, when we started, if she was, I'm going to just be if, earmuffs. If you don't want to hear about my sex, um, she would be on top. I was super uncomfortable. Cause now I'm in mm. like a passive. I didn't like that. I was like in a passive position. I didn't have control. And there was this, like, I'm out of control. I don't know what to do. My mind wanders, whatnot. And I, I actually didn't like that. I didn't like that. I would just be a victim. Like I was at effect of not having control. So I actually practiced, which is good, good fun practice, right? <laughs> Being with her, having this experience. And now she joked just recently, remember when, totally different experience now. And it's not, it's it's the wholeness of it all, right? Like our experience as a couple, our experience having sex, my yeah. experience as a man, my experience having sex is now broader and bigger and better. Well, and to your point, so you can enjoy more now as a result of going into that uncomfortable area just outside of your comfort zone. Absolutely. Yeah. What were you going to point to before when I? Uh, Well, I was going to say with you know with the interpretation that like put the hard hat on, go to work. I was like, wow, that's a really shitty shitty metaphor for sex. Um, (laughs) But that's how it went, right? I couldn't. I mean, it was sex was it was all performance. It was all work. But the yeah, well, and it's it's appearance, right? It's how am I being perceived and evaluated. hundred um, percent. But you know, the other interpretation of trying to please her first is that per- perhaps you're a very empathetic guy and you pick up on other people's feelings. So for her, when she goes up in arousal, you pick up on that and it helps your arousal as well. Now that's what I would agree with, but before, <laughs> but not was, then, no, no, but before to your point, it was, it was ego and performance. And I remember being younger and going if i'm if i'm better at this more women will want me it was solely it wasn't it wasn't like i want to take care of them because i have empathy and compassion i want to it was now it benefits them but it, now i i like what you said but it was always when i identified that i was relating to sex from performance and ego and how i appeared and looked it was like a smack to the face i had i, to, I think it's also competitiveness Mm-hmm. I think that's in there too. And sure. I see a lot of men that I talked to were, you know, D1 athletes or professional athletes. And they're, you know, I'll ask them on a 10 point scale, one being, I don't care, 10 being I'm hyper competitive. Where are you? And they'll say one of two things. They'll say a 10 or an 11. And I say, yeah, okay, that's, that's what I thought. You know, I would have pegged you to nine or a 10. And now, now they're out of sports. And they're getting into these knockdown, drag out arguments with their wife. And I, the question I always ask is, so 
have you considered that you might be bringing that competitiveness over into your disagreements with your wife? And how do you think that impacts those disagreements? In other words, let me ask you this. Is it all about winning? Mm. Because in a successful relationship, it's not about winning the disagreement. There's two kinds of, of conversation. One is the debate where you and I are going back and forth. I'm trying to convince you that I'm right. I have a, a point, a hypothesis I'm trying to make. And I only win when you finally go, oh, John, I don't know what I was thinking. You are so right. Yeah, which that happens never gonna all happen. the time, right? <laughs> yeah, which is, yeah, never going to happen. And then the other one is, I would say, something like consultation where you approach the conversation with curiosity, non-judgment, just with the goal of finding out more and listening and f discovering where they're coming from. So those are two completely different ways of going about it. But it's, it's always a light bulb going on for a lot of us because I think most men are highly competitive, whether it's in sex or dating or work or making money or having a better car, better physique. Um, and that part just kills us because we, we don't see it very clearly. And we don't, again, it's the only gear we have. So we're competing in every aspect of our lives. Yeah, I've never heard of that put like that. And I think that's a really great, when I think about arguments that I have in relationships, whether it's the one I have now, or there's often the, I want to be right, right? And, and you, you've heard the, we've, I think most of us have heard the like, you can be right or you can be in relationship. Yeah, or right or be happy. Yeah, what, what yeah. do you choose? Yeah. Um, and, but we're also, we're so conditioned. And I know, I mean, look, in the world we live in now, women are, are conditioned to be competitive too, either with other women in that way, or we live in a world where women are playing performance sports and whatnot at high levels also. And we're, you know, we're putting all kids in, in these yeah. things. And what were you going to say? Well, the, the other thing that's interesting about the man box culture idea is that women are not immune from it. So women can buy into it in an effort to play in the men's world, so to speak. I think that's kind of what happened in the recent past. Um, and so they would adopt more male, stereotypically masculine qualities in order to survive and thrive in like the business world. Um, but then the other part of it is, and this part I hate, it's that the insults that we used to get or sometimes still get as young men, um, pussy, bitch, little girl, those all speak to the essence of femininity, the essence of femaleness. So the comparison or the, the, the message is, if you're female, you're less than. And, and on the other side of the spectrum, it's if you're gay, you're less than. But, you know, we're not the only ones that hear these messages. The women hear them too. The girls mm -hmm. hear them too. Yeah. Well, the gays hear them too. But, and they internalize the message of, I'm female, I'm less than. And that really fries me now that I have two daughters. That, that actually is, I want to touch on that too, because I didn't, being a man, seeing all this that you see, what's the biggest thing that's changed for you having two daughters? <laughs> huh. um, I, you know, I, I think the, the biggest thing I shoot for is to, in, to give them permission to be a mixture of masculine and feminine. So in other words, I've always given my daughters permission to say no, even to me if they have a reason. Because I, I think a lot of times what we do as parents is 
we expect our children to be compliant and obedient when they're growing up at home with us, but then they go out on a date for the first time. And that's the first time they've really practiced being assertive and saying no. And how do you think that's going to go? So I've always trained my girls to be able to say no repeatedly, forcefully, if needed. Um, I also think I, I like my daughters to be, to have the ability to shift gears so they can be feminine and polite and, and beautiful, but then also to be a Tom girl, to be able to go out on the soccer field and smash. And, and I want them to experience pain. I want them to experience that they can bounce back quickly from pain in order to increase resiliency. I want them to know what they're capable of intellectually, physically, and emotionally. Mm. I, I've never heard the, that no piece before. And it's, I mean, it's, first of all, it's ingenious to build that muscle at home like that knowing the impact that it could have later on. Um, have you ever read Boys and Sex or Girls and Sex, that series? I think you'd really like it. Um, I've talked about it a few times on this. It's a woman who, she wrote a book about the original, she's written a bunch, of, a bunch of books about girls and sex and kind of done the same thing where she's interviewed women about, you know, teenagers, young women, 20 somethings about their experience, where they learned, what does it mean to be a woman? And she got such, She's a multiple-time New York Times bestseller. She got such um, acclaim for what she was doing, people got her to do it with boys. And it sounds very familiar, like what you're talking about. I've been, it's a phenomenal book. It's, I mean, it's what you're doing already. It's what your clients are doing. Uh, it's just another look at the, the stories and the things we learn and how we're not taught these things, right? Girl, women aren't necessarily, necessarily taught how to say no at home men are not taught that it's not okay to actually manipulate the shit out of people to get them in bed yeah. with you. We're actually praised for that. It's like, Oh, I got her. I got her to come home with me. Yeah. Right. It might. Yeah. Not it's be a conquest and object, mm -hmm. which is yeah. messed up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like, it's not, it's not rape, but it's also not genuine and it's not authentic and it's not like yeah. out of integrity. Um, What's well, interesting along that. Can I break in there? Because one of the things yeah. that I've, one of the questions I have asked men over the past 20, 25 years is, what did you think about your first time having sex? Do you have any regrets? And the vast majority of them say, yeah, because mm. it didn't mean anything. It wasn't in a relationship. I, I didn't know what I was doing. And, and I would agree that, and it, then the, the extension of that is, what do you think about one night stands? And again, the vast majority of them are like, now, you know, I tried it and it's not really for me. I, 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 I don't feel that great about myself after a one night stand. I mean, it's great in the moment. Mm -hmm. That's that hedonistic pleasure. But afterwards, you know, some feel dirty, some feel guilty, some feel they used the other person. Um, but that, those answers surprised me because I think we are led to believe as men that it's all about conquest, sexual conquest. And, you know, the, mass, the more we have, the, mass, the more masculine we are. And, you know, in, in talking with men, it's just doesn't seem to hold up. Um, the other thing that's interesting is I, I used to think when I was in middle school that I was the only guy that felt things deeply. And I totally felt like a fish out of water. And, but, you know, like everyone else, I'm surviving. So I'm putting the mask on and trying to pretend that I'm stoic and don't feel anything. Um, but again, in having conversations with men for many years, 
the vast majority of them are exactly the same. Yeah. And I think that's an important message to get out there. Just look, we all feel, well, except for the, you know, psychopaths and sociopaths, but that's a, minor, that's a minority. But, um, you know, I think just that awareness of the vast majority of men, I would say 90, 95% feel things deeply. We're just all pretending not to. And we've been cut off from those emotions for so long that we're not even aware when they smack us in the face. Yeah. I think that the first time I ever went and saw a psychologist or a therapist, I don't remember what she had done, but I went cause I thought I was, I remember I called my mom and I was living in New York city, like 30. And I said, I think I need to go see a therapist. My mom said, why? You know, she's, she is a therapist. And I said, I just, there's something off. I feel like I don't feel feel like I don't know how to feel. I just feel like my life isn't what well, I really needed a coach, like, cause I was more future focused, but I didn't even know coaching existed then. And I went and saw this therapist. And I remember the first time I sat down with her, she was like, tell me what, you know, why are you here? And I was like, and I didn't say this to my mom right off the back, but I had said, I think I'm a sociopath. And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I haven't like murdered anyone or done anything like that, but I think I don't have feelings. Like, I don't, I literally don't think I have feelings. I saw somebody recently get hit by a car and I was just like, I don't know them. And I like, walk, like I, and what I learned very quickly in working with her was, okay, it's not that you don't have them. You've actually trained yourself so well to shut them down and turn them off that we just have to give you some access. And then as soon as we opened that door, they came back in, like, it was like a flood, right? Of them coming back in. But I think that's, I love that you're pointing to that. And I think a lot of men and maybe even women need to hear, like, if you don't feel like you have feelings or you don't feel like you feel or you're not going there, they're there. Mm-hmm. You might have to practice. It's like a muscle that's been atrophied. You might have to yeah. get in there and have some practice. Well, and I think, you know, Rene Descartes really screwed us with his whole, I think, therefore I am line. Because, uh-huh, yeah. you know, when I was in college, I was like, oh, yeah, that's me. Like, I think, therefore I am. And, you know, I was all in my head. And I think that's true for a lot of men because, we are rewarded and encouraged to do things like get good grades or problem solve or fix things, do the math problem right. And, you know, emotions don't reside in your head for the most part. Emotions are embodied. And so to take our attention out of our head and off our thoughts and to practice putting it onto our body and asking ourselves, you know, what's your heart rate doing? Where's your blood flowing? What's your chest doing in terms of tightness? What's your, your GI tract doing? Um, that's kind of how you begin to identify what you're feeling is like connecting those physiological sensations with certain basic emotions. And I think that's a really important exercise just to begin with, um, for a lot of men. Besides utilizing you and I'm going to, we're going to give out all your information in a second. Um, what are some like resources you like for men? Are there any books or people that you follow that are great places, especially to start men that are like, Hey, Books. I want to. Oh, so I, there's a great book um, by Terry real, who I think is one of the best couples counselors in the country. Um, and it's, he's got multiple, but one that I love is how can I get through to you? And that's a great one. Um, the, the other thing that I like just in terms, if you're a man looking to increase emotional awareness and emotional literacy, which basically means that you know more words, more emotion words, and can identify them in your body, uh, there's Paul Ekman's um, website. It's a project that he did for the Dalai Lama, and it's, called, it's at uh, atlasofemotions.org. And, you know, I, I think it's a really worthwhile 
practice to be curious about emotions, to learn finer and finer distinctions about between what you feel, because we know from a UCLA study that if you can put the right label on what you're feeling, it reduces the intensity. But also, again, if happiness is a primarily an emotional experience and you're cut off from the vast majority of your emotions, I mean, I think every one of the 7.3 billion people on this planet ultimately want happiness. We just tend to go about it in mistaken ways. <laughs> and, you know, a big part of leading a happy life is emotional literacy, emotional awareness. As you mentioned, I think, I thought you said you very well of leading a full, complete life, that yeah. wholehearted life. Because yeah. then you open yourself up to the experience of everything, which, and, and here's the problem with that is it can be painful at times too. But, yeah. but part of the journey, I think, is learning greater emotional resiliency so that you can open yourself up to connection, occasionally be hurt by people, which is inevitable, and then do it again as quickly as you can. Because yeah, I remember I when I, one of, the, one of the keys in positive psychology is that relationships are needed for a happy life. And I was like, son of a bitch. Damn, like now I got to go be social. I view relationships as it'd be, first of all, it'd be easier not to have them. It's actually easier. You'd be easier not to get married, easier not to fall in love, like easier not to have friends. I don't know that it would be satisfying, but it'd be easier. And I view and hold relationships as the area that we create the most opportunity for our growth. And I think mm -hmm. that's why we find ourselves with similar kinds of people over and over again. Now we could choose to break that and look for people that are the complete opposite or whatnot. But I think there's a reason why we find we date similar people and it's not just our own habits. I think there's a, there's some spiritual version of like, there's something that they confront in you that they stretch in you. Um, you know, would it be easier if like the person that you were with agreed with everything you said and was like, you know, set and yeah. was like a, uh, what do they call it? Like a Stepford wife, like back, uh -huh. but may maybe, I don't know. Like, I know that when I've been in situations like that, I was bored, right? Like I need, it's almost, somebody said this the other day. I don't remember who it was. Somebody I was working with or talking to talked about how like the friction of life causes the sparks, which is the magic. Yeah. And it's kind of like, that's the relationship too, right? Like the friction of a relationship can be the catalyst for the magic of a relationship. And I don't mean just romantically, but any kind of relationship. Yeah, I, I like your point. I, I always love the idea that, you know, lessons will be presented again and again and again until you master the lesson. Mm -hmm. So the people might change that are doing the presenting, but you're going to keep getting hit with the same thing over and over and over until you figure out, yeah. oh, that's how you do it. Yeah. You said a thing too before about like the, the happiness. Um, I think I agree with you that I think most people, that's what most people want is at the end of the day, most people want to be happy, right? They might say they want to be happy, be a good person and be loved, but there's some happiness tied to these things. And it's funny how we do all sorts of things that make us actually unhappy in the striving to be happy. And mm -hmm. that self-sabotage, right? I used to try to get laid and get women for the instant gratification of happiness but as soon as that it was over and done with, I actually felt way worse. Mm -hmm. Instead of having changed, just kept doing the same thing over again, hoping for a different result. Well, and, and that's the hedonism approach, right? And I would right. say hedonism, you know, kind of the sex, drugs, rock and roll, or pure sensory pleasure um, is part of happiness. But to your point, just what you said, that it only lasts as long as the act itself. So if you're taking yeah. ecstasy, you might feel good for four to six hours, but then afterwards you got that serotonin 
deficit. Um, sex, the same thing might feel good for, I don't know, 30 seconds for me, maybe 15 minutes for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and so I, I think that there's part of it, but I actually think part of that sensory pleasure that's better is focusing on things like touch and hug and um, the, the sensory part of pleasure, smelling flowers, um, the taste of food, the smell of coffee. You know, and, and I think we, we know that positive emotions are fleeting, fragile, and they whisper to us. So, you know, one of the keys, I think, is learning how to spot emotions, particularly positive emotions, quickly, and then to practice savoring them or extending them out over time. Because a, a typical positive emotion might last one to three seconds. But if you practice, you can stay with it longer and stretch that out to 10 seconds, 30 seconds. And then if you string together these, you know, moments of different positive emotions, curiosity, awe, wonder, love, joy, uh, relaxation, awe, I think I said that. Um, but then you've got more and more time that you're spending in a pleasant emotional place. And, and that's just a part of happiness. That's a small part. Well, John, I want to, I mean, I really want to thank you, not just for do, being here with me. Um, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing, that you've done on yourself so that you can be in a place that you can do this work with other men. You know, I think, I very much think that if men took some steps to improve themselves, we would see a vastly different world. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only, no one can make us do this work. And it doesn't mean that we're wrong or that we're bad but that we have room to grow. We have room to improve. We don't, and we're not changing because there's space to change. I, I think it goes back to that. We, it's about living fuller lives, happier lives, more complete lives, and becoming more of who we actually are versus who we've con been conditioned to think that we are. Um, so thanks for doing this work with men, for having the impact that you've already had. You've already impacted well over, you know, you said, I know 10, over 10,000 men for your anger management online class, but many more through your other programs, um, through the work you do as a coach with different organizations. And just thanks for sharing that with us here. I want to let people know where they can find more about you. I know that you, if people go to guide to self.com, so I'm just, it's, it's spelled exactly how it sounds, guidetoself.com. They can do, uh, book a complimentary talk on the power. I, is it with you? Is it an actual live talk? No, well, that's a, I think it's a 20-minute um, recording of a, a talk yeah. I gave on the power of mindset. Okay. So you can go there and you can get this power of mindset talk and learn the mindset that fuels success and happiness. And they can check you out at theevolvedcaveman.com. Uh on, you're on Instagram, you're on Twitter, you have a Facebook page. If they go to Evolve Caveman, can they find everything there? Yeah, to get yeah. them everywhere? Awesome. And um, anything else you want people to know about you or, or you know, anything else you want to say that you feel like maybe didn't get said or got, you haven't said? Yeah, I think that just for men, um, if you consider that for well, for many of the men that I see, they're constantly learning and growing with regards to work and upping their level of like gamifying their skills for work. So, you know, you could kind of up leveling. And I would say or suggest your life can be much more happy if you apply that same effort at your relationships at home.
And I would argue that the relationships at home are far more important than what we're doing at work. And, and so I, th I think we just lose touch with those priorities over time. I love that. Yeah. You can bring that, that level of, I want to say, like, I like to think of it sometimes as performance, the way you, you want to perform better. You perform, you do all this work at the gym to improve your body or yep. you do it to improve your ability to make more money. But what about the other aspects of your life? John, thanks again. Thank you. For hey, thanks, being Alex. Here. Thanks for spending the time. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, it was a blast. I would love I would love to have you back. I think we could talk about these things for a long time. Um, I don't, you know, but I think for one podcast, this was a lot. And uh, I know I learned a lot. I got pages worth of, worth of notes and things I wrote down. So uh, thank you. And uh, hopefully people will check out what you're up to and uh, we'll be in touch. Fantastic. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for listening. Honestly, I'm just a rebel who found a cause and has a dream. And I'm super grateful for your support. If you got anything from this, please help me out and share this podcast with one person today. You can find me at thedreammason.com or at inspirationalalex on Instagram. You are a dream mason because your dreams don't build themselves.